Welcome to another Learn Easy Cast. Um, this is episode 12. My God, Rico, we've made it to episode 12. <laughs> How you yeah. doing, man? I'm doing well, you know, I, I have no complaints. So it's good to see you again, Pat. Happy to be doing episode number 12. Let's keep the, uh, the good energy up and keep the episodes rolling. Yeah, that's, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And as always, with our Learn Easy Cast, we start off with um, something uh, that's on our mind. Um, what's on your mind? Uh, opening discussion. And I guess I want to start this time, Rico, because I've been following um, some news online about uh, the saga, the, this epic saga of this uh, store called GameStop. Um, and how its shares uh, have gone up, has soared to like 1,700% because of uh, some upstarts um, from Wall Street bets, um, some young day traders trying to compete against the, the big hedge funds who have been shorting the GameStop stock because they think GameStop is old school, that nobody really wants to go buy their video games at a physical store, right? And uh, I've been paying attention to it because uh, it's such a David versus Goliath kind of saga, and uh, and and I want David to win. And then, in <laughs> fact, yeah, yeah, man, I want them to win because if you if you see what's going on, it's the little guys. I saw a, a New York Times article. One guy, um, if I can remember his name, um, basically made over sixty thousand bucks out of like a thousand dollar bet he made on GameStop. Because of Wall Street, Wall Street bets. Oh yeah, I got him here. Pablo Baptista. He put a four thousand dollar investment in stocks uh, into Wall Street bets. Uh, in terms of um, you know the recommendations they made uh, to um, actually buy GameStop well, stock. That's a that's a Reddit. That's a subreddit on Reddit, I believe. Exactly on Reddit, right? A bunch of redditors, right? But a lot of young upstarts trying to uh, shake up the system. Exactly. I mean, I'm all for it, but please, please do continue. Yeah, and 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 he made sixty-seven thousand because he sold at the right time. Uh, but uh, as we're speaking right now, um, the kibosh has come from up on high from the tribe of the rich men. They they've been talking to each other, and uh, they got they know where, where the the young people go day trading. You know, they they use apps like Robinhood, and uh, because it's free, you know, they can't afford to pay. For uh, the super fast uh, applications that the hedge funds are using to do day trading. Oh, you know? so but so there's no cost to do trades on Robin. Robin yeah, Robin? exactly. I'm not advertising for them anymore, but I'm just saying that's why um, these are there. Yeah, okay. yeah. And and in the end, because Robinhood wants to go and have an IPO and want these big hedge funds to invest in um, that stock. Uh, they were very afraid of the the, the Wall Street titans, uh, uh, and and somehow they were given a talking to, uh, maybe uh, by a co-owner of one of the companies that suffered from uh, this uh, insurrection of uh, the young day traders, <laughs> um, uh, and they basically have stopped allowing people to buy GameStop stock. Right? They basically said you can sell it. But you can't buy it anymore. <laughs> this, this is exclusively through Robinhood or anywhere. Through Robinhood specifically. Yes. And 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 then and now because of that now the stock is falling fifty percent. Yeah. So so it's like okay, it had a huge run, you know. GameStop was soaring, and now it's gone down fifty percent, which means that people are still buying it. 
It's just that they, they aren't buying it through uh, the site Robinhood right now. And, the, and, and so that means the little guys have to figure out a different way to keep their fight against uh, these Wall Street um, short sellers um, from going awry, right? And, 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 and of course, why, are, why, why do I even care about this? It's because the little guys never win these battles, right? And, 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 and it's the tribe of the little guy versus the tribe of the, you know, the, the, the rich man, right? Uh, and, and the rich men always tell you, oh, well, you know, you don't know how much effort, how much time I've put into calculating the risk to be able to short a, a company like GameStop. But the truth is, it wasn't, you know, it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. When you say you're going to short a company, it goes into the news. And what happens? People start selling the stock because they know this big whale is going to try to kill this company, right? And, and, and GameStop is a company from our youth, right? Well, I, I never bought video games from them because my parents never allowed me to. But did you ever buy any video games from them, Reeks? No, I mean, I, I hate saying how old I am, but I, I think, you know, I probably got out of video games before that became uh, a popular option. I, I was already probably in college by the time that it started to really, you know, get very popular. I don't know, but, you know, I think it's interesting. I think that maybe one of the reasons why um, people have gotten into this is like, it's one of those few things you can do, right? Well, during the pandemic, when you're, you're at home, you know, you're not going out, you, you can't engage in, in a physical way, but so, yeah. socially that is, you're going to, you know, do things in a way that you can still engage with people. I know Reddit's a huge social plat- social media platform. I, I'm, I'm a self-professed, uh, you know, Reddit user. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah. I'm not on. I don't follow Wall Street bets. Maybe I should. I should uh, take a look there. Yeah, if if you're into um, trading, uh, that could be an option. Uh, but I like the idea that you brought up that it's about social interaction and people wanting to connect with each other because they can't do it the way they used to by traveling, right? You know, and uh, maybe we get to get into what's on your mind. You know. Well, yeah. So I, I guess you know that. I think that's just it. I think that you know, obviously, now that we're in 2021, I think there's a lot more hope, um, both in the U.S. and around the world with vaccinations now becoming uh, much more commonplace, certainly we've spoken about the rollout, having some problems to say the least. Um, but I, I think that, you know, for me, what I read at least in the news is that, you know, things are still very bad. I mean, certainly maybe the number of cases per capita are going down in a lot of places, especially that where they're doing a more effective rollout of the, vac- the vaccine. Mm-hmm. But I think- I think people still need to think about what are the long-term ramifications. And even if you have been vaccinated and you are maybe not going to become uh, infected again for some period of time due to the immunity you have, I still think that there might be people who are young, who are feeling maybe somewhat more um, invincible, somewhat less worried about becoming infected themselves. But I think it really just comes down to this notion of being asymptomatic, being a carrier, even though you yourself are not exhibiting any exhibiting anything. and and so. I think it just goes to show that we still need to continue to uh, be responsible. I think continue, to, you know, to social to, to continue to social distance and wear a mask. Of course, I think those are things that, you know, as a as a person who wears glasses, wearing a mask is certainly not pleasant. Having to do not that at all, I, I could tell you, yeah, I, I was uh, skiing, um, cross country skiing. You know, imagine me doing that <laughs> here in Black Forest, uh, and then after. Um, off my skis of course you know and skiing and then having to go back i had to put the mask on to go into the ski shop and return the skis and i couldn't see anything because my my eyes were you know my glasses were fogged up and i'm just like oh this is such an inconvenience but you know what 
if you wear a mask, especially a, a FFP2 mask or an N95 mask, you're you're protecting yourself and you're protecting other people. So let's let's take that seriously, right? Yeah. Well, those are the masks that I like the best. I think the the, the KN95 conical shape is probably okay. the, my preferred. Um, Mask. I finally, you know, ponied up some money and bought some black ones, so they're a little bit more stylish. Yeah. But uh, but I only bring this up, you know, because I think that people just still need to just be patient, wait for their vaccine, and that kind of brings me to what's on my mind. I, okay. I read a story about a about a physician, a doctor in the U.S., I believe in Texas, who had um, stolen some vials of the vaccine to be able to inoculate or vaccinate, whatever the correct terminology is, mm-hmm. himself and his family. And, you know, had he done just that, I don't know that anybody would have found out. But as it turns out, at least in what I read, yeah. this physician uh, told a colleague or somebody, an associate of some sort, who then, I, I think on some levels, made the right decision and, and turned him into the authorities. And he was ultimately uh, fired. And I don't know the whole ramifications, but it just goes to show that we still, you know, society are just are not patient enough to just let the systems play out. And Maybe rightfully so, because we see things like this. We see the uh, the issues of people not waiting their place in line. People not allowing Trying to jump jump the line. Yeah, right? jump yeah. the line, right? Yeah, people yeah. not allowing the the vaccines to be you know given where they're intended. And I think that's even an issue that's happening in uh, in Europe, right? Where you know people yeah. not being able to get a vaccine for a lot of other reasons. As you well. you're right. Uh, in terms of jumping the line, we're talking about on the uh, level of countries, right? So the EU. Was complaining that AstraZeneca was basically fulfilling its orders backwards, right? The EU funded AstraZeneca in order to allow them to fast track the vaccine creation process, and they thought they would be first in line to get the first doses of the the vaccine from AstraZeneca. But AstraZeneca made a lot of other deals with other countries, one of them being the UK, and of course the UK decided to pay more, and 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 in a sense. Uh, this is where Brexit comes into play. Now that the UK is no part, longer part of the EU, they can make their own deals. And now they're ahead of the EU in terms of vaccinating a certain percentage of uh, their citizens. And the EU, of course, doesn't like that because they don't want to look like they lost on a deal. And so now they're going to audit AstraZeneca to make sure that they get their fair share of vaccine and so that the rest of the countries that, quote-unquote, paid more you know, to jump the line don't uh, ruin it for the EU that paid to actually get the vaccine created. You know, isn't that crazy? Well, it just sounds more of like you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know, I think that uh, it's unfortunate that that's happening. You know, obviously during a pandemic, we've all been impacted um, in some ways, right? More some more than others. Uh, my heart goes out to anybody who's lost a, a close one, a relative, a friend, a partner. Yes. Uh, whatever the case may be, and it just goes to show you that even on the level of nations, there's still a lot of, uh, you know, distrust and just uh, disagreements and, and outright, uh, you know, uh, I don't even know the correct terminology. Ma- Machiavellian behavior. <laughs> exactly. uh, just take care of myself. I don't care about my enemies. You know, it's, but yeah. You know. But, you know, and, and I don't want to end, uh, you know, this segment on a bad note. Yeah, but yeah I let's stay positive. <laughs> Yeah, I just think, I'm, I, you know, my, my wife has been vaccinated. She's awaiting her second dose. Yes. And uh, so that's that's positive. And hopefully, you know, she'll be able to get her second dose, no problem. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, she's I think, a medical professional. This is, yeah, 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 she, yeah, she's yeah. A, yeah, she's a frontline worker. Yeah. That was how she was able to be uh, put into the queue. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And uh, so for me, being a somewhat young, still still young guy, um, I'm probably going to be last in line, maybe later this summer. Yeah. But uh, I, I certainly will get vaccinated the minute I get the chance. And whatever vaccine, whether it's the uh, Moderna, whether it's Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson is released. Yeah. Uh, their vaccine, which is less effective, I think 66% effective. Yeah, it's a traditional, it's a traditional vaccine, but it's 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 um, more durable in terms of being able to provide uh, vaccinations in countries where you can't, um, you don't have a deep yeah, freezer. Ultra, ultra cold temperatures. Also, it only yeah. takes one, um, yeah. one dose, which is nice. And uh, Dr. Fauci said, yeah, um, was that you know if it weren't for the uh, Moderna and Pfizer vaccines having such a super high efficacy rate. Exactly. If this came out first, 66% would have been, oh my goodness, this is amazing in regards to other vaccines. So Exactly. Yeah. In fact, one dose of the, the AstraZeneca vaccine is about 70% effective. So it's not like you couldn't just give one dose, but the idea of getting 90% of, uh, of resistance to uh, the infection is, is, is just, it's just too attractive, right? It's too attractive. Yeah, so I mean, you know, again with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine that's uh, slated to either already be out, um, it's already out or slated to come out soon. Yep, supposed to produce a billion uh, doses by year end. So yeah. hopefully this allows people to get out and you know travel again and get out and do those things that people want to do have been waiting, yeah. chomping at the bit to be able to do. But uh, anyway, that's all I had today, Pat. For you know what's well, on my um, what's on your mind segment? I got you. I got you. Um, so let's um, move let's on. Jump into yeah. Let's jump into our next segment, which of course is one of our favorites. Is our expert corner? Yeah, experts we'll corner. Bring on you know guests who have a specific uh, expertise in in different areas. And so this particular experts corner is especially uh, uh, you know near and dear to my heart because we're going to be interviewing uh, my twin brother. Antonio Lazo. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode's expert corner. Let's take it away. All right, let's go. Welcome again to another uh, experts corner where we interview guests from around the world. And today I'm going to be interviewing along with Patrick Antonio Lazo, who is a seasoned business executive with nearly 20 years of professional experience, having worked at several Fortune 500 companies, including Accenture, Pfizer, and Walmart. He has spent the past 10 years working and living in Latin America. His passions include fashion, travel, and social media marketing. And typically, I jump right into the questions, but as today's guest is my twin brother, Antonio, I'm going to let Patrick do the honors. Hi, Antonio. Uh, it's great uh, to have you online. I do know Antonio, and I've known him for a while, but you know, for our audience, you know, I'd like um, him to answer a couple questions. Uh, uh, where are you originally from, Antonio, and what languages do you speak? Greetings, Patrick, Ricardo. Nice to join you guys today. Originally from the United States, uh, in Colorado, actually, uh, from a small town, Pueblo, which means small town in Spanish, and uh, basically grew up in the United States. I speak uh, English natively, Spanish fluently, and also speak uh, Portuguese very well. Great. That's great. Uh, and actually, where do you live now? Because uh, the audience would love to know this. Yeah. Yes, I spent the last 10 years living in Latin America. I previously lived in Argentina and Buenos Aires, Mexico City, Mexico, and most recently, uh, Colombia for the past five years. I'm living in Medellin, Colombia at the moment. 
And so Antonio, you know, part of our show is really just highlighting people who like you are expats living abroad and, and you know, people who have experience working internationally. But, you know, what inspired you to work and live abroad? It's interesting, you know, um, as a child, our father, who's of Mexican heritage, uh, his father's originally from Mexico, he first took us on a road trip driving from Colorado all the way down to Mexico, crossing the border. And when we crossed the border into Juarez, Mexico, border city, I was just blown away to see my father speak Spanish. It was like seeing another side of my father that I didn't know existed. And I was like, wow, dad, how is it that you know Spanish and I don't? And so I took it upon myself just to really explore that interest, explore my heritage, began taking classes in Spanish in middle school and high school, I took AP Spanish. And then in college, I decided to pursue Spanish as a major. And it wasn't until an exchange program in Monterrey, Mexico, where I decided to actually start studying business administration since the school where I was going to the university was primarily focused on engineering and business administration. So they didn't really have a very large humanities program I recognized that I could do both. I could study Spanish and business administration. I think through my coursework, taking international business was pivotal. The exchange program in itself as well kind of allowed me to interact and, and, and make friendships with people throughout Latin America, predominantly Mexico, but Puerto Rico, Panama, and later other countries like Brazil and so forth. And so it was a gradual process, but I would say when I did a study abroad in Puerto Rico, University of Puerto Rico in, in Rio Piedras, there was uh, an information session about Thunderbird, the School of Graduate Business, where I went to and got my MBA uh, by this uh, former instructor, now administrator named Humberto Valencia, uh, Bert, and he gave an overview of the school Thunderbird as a primary uh, school to study international business, and this was like in 1999, so well before this whole transformation now of these digital nomads living uh, abroad and so forth. At that point in time, there was a very select audience of people that really wanted to live and work abroad, those that were from the United States. I think that really planted the seed in me to have that international experience, have the international career. Our father did a little bit of international business travel, so that also was kind of a secondary uh, motivation, if you will. But my international business professor in Puerto Rico, his name was Scott Brown, he had this saying that said, you know, international experience coupled with an MBA is the fast track to success. And so that saying just really kind of was cemented in my mind. And so when I returned from Puerto Rico, I just wanted to continue on that track of somehow positioning myself to someday work abroad. Wow. Okay. Sounds amazing, Rico. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's a little bit uh, of a double take there, Antonio. <laughs> I have to be careful. <laughs> yeah. there, uh, the podcast audience, um, if you see us on YouTube, you'll, they look almost exactly alike, except nowadays uh, Antonio has yeah, a have better lighting, if you will. But other than that, yeah, 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 exactly. And, and Antonio now has a very cool beard, you know, that I have to respect. You know, mine's is just growing back. <laughs> but but getting to back to the interview, I was just wondering about um, you spoke about your father somehow as being a mentor and this um, professor um, uh, that taught you in Puerto Rico. Um, were there any other um, mentors that you patterned your uh, your life after um, that would be interesting for the audience, you know, outside of, of, of those two particular? Yeah, well, I would say in my, in my 
early professional days when I was when I was a consultant at Accenture, one of the partners, John Ratson, he took me under his arm, and he really was only maybe three or four years older than me, but because he had jumped into consulting immediately after undergraduate, like at 21, by the time I became uh, familiar with the guy, he had already been like 10 years in as a professional, was recently promoted to a partner at Accenture, and he was a guy who didn't necessarily have that international exposure, but he was the guy that really took me under his wing, told me how to do things as simple as when you have an Excel template or a document you're working on, you want to make sure that thing is ready to go, print, format it, ready. And so when you hit the print, it comes out nice and beautiful. The way to take meeting minutes, meeting notes, how to present to uh, uh, business executives and so forth. And so I think it was really those kind of uh, nuts and bolts, if you will, of how to be a stronger professional that was really, that allowed me to kind of equip my professional tool belt. And so he was definitely paramount into positioning me for uh, getting my MBA. And in fact, he wrote a letter of recommendation on my behalf as I applied to Thunderbird. And he thought that Thunderbird was a really great program for me, that I was the ideal candidate, having that professional experience prior to the MBA. And he knew that I was on the right track to someday pursue an international career. So he's one of the guys that really marked my career pre-MBA, I would say, with regard to that. And so uh, it's, it's kind of uh, fun interviewing my twin brother here. Um, you've spoken a lot about your professional background, your training, you know, mentors and such. And I know you've always really enjoyed, you know, fashion and style. Um, but what got you into, you know, the fashion tourism industry? It's not something we've touched on just yet, but uh, can you just elaborate a little bit about your interest in fashion and how that led you into getting involved in the fashion tourism industry? Sure, absolutely. I mean, coming from Pueblo, Colorado, it's a place where fashion isn't even a, a terminology used in the daily vernacular, to be honest. Everybody's a jeans and t-shirts kind of guy, mm-hmm. so to speak. And then moving to New York was a place, I think, that really marked me as far as U.S. fashion is concerned, New York being the fashion capital of the United States for the most part. And the first brand I really enjoyed was Kenneth Cole, New York. That was a brand that I was just I really identified with very classic, edgy, urban wear, if you will. So that was something that really left a mark in my mind. I really started buying a lot of Kenneth Cola attire and so forth. But it wasn't really until I went to Italy uh, in in the summer of 2007, actually. I had, this was during my MBA, I had done a study abroad in the Czech Republic. And once that program ended, being already in Europe, I decided to do like a short three-week study of Italian in Rome. And that's where I really d- became aware that black, even I'm wearing black today, is, is a color that's not really worn in Italy so much. I mean, the pastels, the purples, the loud, just really the Roman style of putting it out there was one of those moments that planted a seed in my mind of fashion. Started wearing brown dress shoes for the first time in my life, for example. So those like those pivotal moments, if you will, that left that mark on me. And then after I graduated my MBA, I went back to New York and worked for Pfizer doing internal audits. I was traveling around the world. And so that allowed me to jet set, if you will, to Latin America, to Europe, to Australia. And so through those trips, I kind of started seeing different styles, if you will. And I didn't really know that I wanted to get involved with fashion then. But fast forward a number of years later, last year, I was actually at a a wedding in Rome for a good friend from Colombia. She married an Italian guy from Rome. And it just so happened 
that during the dinner reception, reception dinner rather, I was sitting next to her cousin, Miriam, Miriam Angulo. She's Colombian American. She uh, did a study abroad in Italy, fell in love, and eventually became married to an Italian. So she spent like 20 years in Florence. She studied hospitality, so she actually started a wine business, doing wine tours all over Tuscany. And so when we were talking, she mentioned to me, she's like, hey, Tony, uh, you know, I'm really interested in fashion. I've just now created this company called Culturista Travel. Culturista being a play on words of hot couture and tourism, or turista, like a tourist in Spanish, so Culturista Travel. And she wanted to get this business launched off of the ground. But being a, an older woman, not that much older than me, but in her 50s, she really wasn't familiar with the need to uh, really promote her business digitally through social media platforms and so forth. She and her other partner, Lazaro, they had invested heavily in print advertising, print media, and so forth, radio, TV, really the old school traditional media. It wasn't at all clear where, where to take her, her business. But this business, Culturista Travel, what they do is they do fashion tours in Florence, Italy, which is really one of the fashion capitals in Italy. I mean, Milan is kind of considered the fashion capital, but Florence is where all the artisans, where all of the attire and shoes are actually manufactured. So I, I became involved with the organization really as someone to provide some kind of consulting background for them of how to revamp their business from a digital perspective and so forth. And I still participate to this day supporting that business. So that opportunity has really allowed me to express my interest, not only in fashion, but also digital marketing, social media marketing and so forth. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, that's uh, a nice uh, segue to... Um, your international life. Uh, so you really were inspired to to get into other areas of, uh, um, you know, expat life because you have international friends. And, and as an expat um, myself, uh, I'd like to hear a little bit about some of the pluses and minuses for you of being an expat. You said before um, that you're currently living in Colombia. Um, uh, can you give uh, the audience a little bit of uh, insight into um, some of the issues and maybe some of the, the um, I guess, the positives of living abroad? Absolutely. I mean, being from the United States of America, from the U.S., a lot of things really just work. You know, you might be frustrated, for example, when you go to the DMV or certain you know government-based agencies as somehow inefficient, but it's really kind of a great training ground when you do step abroad to what's in a third world country living in Latin America. So for example, let me just take a step back though and kind of just talk a little bit about how I even wound up in Colombia. Okay. We talked a little bit about mentorship. And so when I was working for Pfizer, traveling through these different audits around the globe, I was constantly going to Latin America to really leverage my language experience. So I really went to almost every single country in Latin America and struck a friendship with uh, the finance director from Argentina. And she ultimately recruited me to work uh, in Argentina. So at that point in time, I was a little bit frustrated to enjoy these three-week uh, business trips in Latin America, really kind of living abroad. But at the end of the three weeks, I had to go back to the United States. And so that, for me, was frustrating. I just realized I had to find a way to work in Latin America, even though, to your question about you know, what are some of the pros and pluses and minuses, there are obviously challenges in Latin America. But ultimately, I was recruited to work in Argentina. So once I moved to Argentina, I thought, okay, I speak Spanish. I know how to operate in Latin America. But to be honest, I didn't really have that much experience in Buenos Aires. You know, I had been there once for one business trip or maybe twice. 
and there, just for your audience to know, Spanish is very uh, varied or diverse in the way it's spoken around the world in Latin America, in Spain, for example, but specifically in the Southern Cone where you have Argentina and Uruguay, it's a very, very different Spanish where they don't even call it Spanish. They call it Castilian Spanish or Castellano, as they say with their pronunciation. So I was considered not the gringo, as they say in Mexico, but with the Yankee, the wow. Shanti. And so that was really eye-opening for me that even though I look Latino, I have a Latin Spanish name, I was very much the American in the office. <laughs> and so that was really, really challenging. You know, in the United States, people might think we're cold or standoffish, but for the most part, we're actually pretty friendly once you get to know us. But in, in Buenos Aires, it's a very, very kind of closed off society. You know, if you're not a member of the country club or you didn't go to university with them or you didn't go to the same um, primary school, high school, you really don't get to enter their social circle. It's only those people who maybe be, who are from other cities in, in Argentina say Santa Fe or, or Rosario, other cities, they come to Buenos Aires and they themselves are also encountered with the same situation as being kind of an outsider, if you will. So that was a really, I think, big challenge for me, you know, because it's hard to operate at your top professional ability when you're not truly content with your personal life. You don't feel like you have a best friend in the office. You don't feel like you fit in, so to speak. It's hard. It, it kind of weighs on you subconsciously. So that was something I didn't even recognize before going, that there were going to be these kind of cultural challenges. And I didn't even take in cross-cultural communications during my MBA program and so forth. And you just don't realize how difficult it, it can be. It's very subtle. It's not in your face, but you really have to live it. And I think it also uh, ties back to your personality style. I think people that are more extroverted, they might find it a little bit easier. But being an introvert, it, it did take uh, some time to get adjusted. So that would be one way to answer your question. And then secondly, I would say Latin America is the land of mañana, the land of tomorrow. So I think the way time is perceived in the United States, it's very linear. Someone mm -hmm. says to have a gathering at their place, their apartment for a dinner party, whatever, they say 7 p.m., you can bet that people are going to be arriving 7 p.m., 7.05, 7.10 at the latest. 7 p.m. in Latin America, that's like the suggested hour. That's like when you start getting ready Maybe that's when you leave your house. In fact, if you show up at 7 p.m., you're like early. It's almost offensive in a way. So I think the way time is perceived, now I almost live that Latin style. I still like to be on time, but instead of arriving at, say, 7.30, I'll arrive at 8 o'clock knowing full well that's just the arrival time. And in fact, sometimes when you ask in Colombia where I live now, you say, is that hora colombiana or hora gringa? You know, is that Colombian <laughs> hour or the gringo hour? Okay. Sometimes it's a mixed crowd. If it's a, an American hosting an event, they'll say, they'll say oh, hora gringa. But if it's okay. a Colombian, you pretty much know it's hora, hora colombiana. So those kind of things you have to experience and live. And you can read in a book about it, but it's not really until you live it and understand it. And you go to someone's house early that you recognize that you had this cultural faux pas. Mm, okay. Uh, and, and any pluses? Uh, it sounds like, okay, these are like cute minuses but kind of like a little bit of a positive there um but but can you be more clear about the positives uh, uh total absolutely i think to a certain degree after, after having lived in argentina mexico and colombia i think i would say i found my happy place in colombia in the sense that argentina 
it's a very distinct culture. I loved Argentina. I went back in 2017 and had a blast and recognized how much I had evolved, if you will, since I lived there. I was kind of green. I was a rookie when I, my first experience living and working abroad. And after living in Latin America for several years to go back to Buenos Aires, I enjoyed it even much more so. I would say some of the highlights. First of all, I would say, you know, um, even though I did take a significant pay cut from mm -hmm. working in New York to work in Buenos Aires, you know, there, I would say the cost of living, first and foremost, is much more affordable, right? If you have a decent salary in Latin America, you can live very well. I have a maid, a cleaning woman that comes by once a week, and she really takes care of me. We have the entire apartment. She does some cooking. She does some shopping for me. So that really, I think, is a huge plus. It helps organize your life, organize, uh, you know, the way you approach your day. You know, like on Wednesdays when she comes by, I know I'm going to have lunch taken care of. So it's a real plus from a time perspective. You only get 24 hours in a day. So when you have somebody that can just take care of that for you, you in a way get like an extra hour or two back in your life. That's a huge plus. Also, I think not just cost of living, but cost of travel. In mm -hmm. Colombia in particular, it's very affordable to fly in a small country. It's not that large. You can fly to Cartagena, go to the beach for the weekend, and not really spend that much. Whereas in the U.S., if you live in Denver, for example, you want to do a weekend getaway, first of all, it's far from the beach. So you really can't do that weekend getaway. But flying to Cancun or flying to somewhere on the western coast of Mexico, it's not really possible to do on the weekend. Where in Colombia, you can really kind of jet set around the country to get a varied type of uh, geography, different cities, the beach, uh, and so forth. And it's at a very affordable cost. So that's another plus. Ooh, okay. So, uh, and so then just to kind of wrap up our interview today, I, I, would, I was just wondering if you have any tips for people who maybe are considering, you know, living abroad, becoming an expat, things that you kind of referred to in your first experience in Argentina, being a little bit green, this is your first time living abroad, even though you had studied abroad and had lived abroad before, but as a professional, you know, what are there things that you wish you would have known? Sort of those tips that you could give to these young upstarts who are looking to maybe expand the professional horizons living abroad. Just anything that, you know, make would maybe make their transition that much easier. Just things that you maybe didn't think of and have developed over time. Well, I would say uh, Facebook has a lot of groups oriented specifically to these niche type of interests. So, for example, when I first moved to Argentina, it was 2010. Facebook had not been around that long. But now, you know... Uh, 10 years later, you go to Facebook, you go to like expats, Colombia, expats, Medellin, you can jump right in. And I see messages all the time. I am so-and-so, I'm 25, I've studied this, I'm looking to move to Colombia. What kind of tips do you have? And so they really, the, the forum, if you will, provides a lot of information that even myself I'll use. For example, can you recommend a, a good mechanic? Can you recommend a, a good handyman? So me living as an expat, but people that are looking to move abroad you can ask those questions in an ambiance, in an, in an environment where you know people who are living there and are willing to meet with you on your first day. You could say, I'm arriving uh, March 1st at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I would love to be able to grab a coffee or grab some lunch with somebody. So you, in a way, you don't have to know anybody at all, and you can kind of jump in and have some contacts that are willing to receive you who are more open. Because sometimes, if you don't have any friends or contacts, it can be intimidating, right? So I would say that's definitely a primary starting uh, place for those considering living abroad. Thanks for those tips. I, I, I don't think that I was really ever um, looking into that kind of content, you know, when I was living abroad. So that's really great to know that those, you know, uh, I think social media outlets can really inform you to make your experience that much richer and, and maybe even before you go to kind of prepare yourself. Sure. 
Oh, that was great. Thank you, Antonio, um, for t taking the time with us today. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to having you back on the podcast in the future to hear about your exploits uh, in Colombia. And, uh, and uh, yeah, uh, we really appreciate it. Um, anything else, Reeks? Well, no, I mean, that's, that's really it for today's interview. Thank you so much, Antonio, for coming on. We look forward to hearing more about your uh, adventures and exploits in, in Latin America and perhaps Europe or elsewhere. Uh, but thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. I enjoyed speaking with you guys. Talk to you later. Okay. All right. Take care, Antonio. Bye-bye. Ready to close out? Rico? Absolutely. And so, you know, I think obviously knowing my brother as best as anybody can, being his twin brother, um, it was still nice to hear things and learn about things that I didn't know about him. So even though I know, of course, his journey from the time we were both, you know, babies until <laughs> we grew into adults and, and now are, you know, getting into our professional careers further along in our careers, I should say, it's always nice to uh, to continue to learn about the people who are near and dear to you. Yeah, I was, I was, I've known um, Antonio and I've known you for for over a decade now, right? In 2003, we met, right? I, wow. I, no, in 2002, I think we're, we're approaching, we're, we're fast approaching two decades. Two decades, years. yeah. And I learned some stuff too about Antonio I never knew. 20 years we've known each other, bro. Okay, so I have to say that was one of my favorite interviews so far. But I, you know, you can't compare interviews. They're all, you know, wonderful, right? But yeah, I'm very happy that we were able to bring you that one. And uh, we want you to... Well, yes? I just want to say that uh, for our listeners who have uh, corresponded with us, let us know what you like yeah. and do not like. Uh, just thank you for that feedback. And then also, if you have anybody, if you have any uh, guests that you would like us to interview, feel free to let us know. We'd be happy to uh, reach out to them and bring them onto the show. Yeah, great point, Rico. You can hit us up on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, especially for our business-minded uh, folks. And just let us know what you're looking for, who you'd like us to talk to. As always, you know, give us the hookup on somebody to talk to. We'd love that. And then we'll keep learning with you. And, uh, and yeah, so, so I guess that's it for us. Keep learning easy. And, uh, yeah, see you next time, Rico. Take care, Pat.